Episode 269, The Rant, Chris Kelly, Public School Athletic League assigner for the Bronx, Staten Island, and Manhattan, and eternal lover of sports as a player, coach, and referee. It was just a short year ago where Chris came by one of my games, unannounced, to give me insight to improve my game. With no games going on, we sit down to talk about the state of the world, the state of officiating, and sports. We discuss her early life in Brooklyn, New York, her relationship with sports serving in a multitude of different capacities, and what officiating means to her. All that and more, my conversation with Chris, now. The Rant has been brought to you by Geo Studios, now open. They are located one block south of Westbury Train Station in the heart of Long Island, New York. Looking to bring your art or event to life? Trying to record a podcast? Enjoy six rooms of studio space to create audio and visual content. It also includes an 800-square-foot cyclorama wall studio, a state-of-the-art recording studio, three breakout rooms for four to six people each, which include a green room and lounges, a quality surround sound with six speakers and studio lighting, and most importantly, two on-site restrooms. You know I need my restrooms. Book your space today. For more information, find us at geoevents.com. The Rant has been brought to you by the revolutionary product for referees and all professionals alike, Neat Tucks. What the tuck? Traditional shirt stays have been tried and true, but never accounted for those professionals that have shorts as uniforms. What do you do when you officiate soccer or lacrosse or even basketball in the summer? Don't forget about baseball umpires, too. Enter knee tucks, which come in style and active versions. Don't get it twisted. You can even wear them at your 9 to 5, too. Listeners of The Rant can visit neatucks.com and enter the coupon code REFEREERANT, one word, and receive 20% off your initial order. That's referee rant, one word. Happy tucking. Welcome to another edition of The Rant. I'm your host, Ralph the Ref. I'm with a super special guest, PSAL assigner for, what is it, Manhattan, Staten Island, and the Bronx. Manhattan, Staten Island, and the Bronx, yes. And of, and of course, a longtime official in the New York City area. Miss Chris Kelly, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Can I get a can I get a fist bump? A fist bump. I'm out of practice. You yeah. know, COVID. I know. I haven't seen anybody in months. I know. And I've I've seen you twice during this whole time, and I'm happy that you're alive. I'm happy that we still have a, a connection because it's it's like a treat. It's a delicacy when you see other officials in the game. And you know, I'm really proud and excited to speak to you. I'm really happy that I made a platform for something that you could be on and share your story because I think a lot of people would be interested in hearing your story in this whole game. No, not sure about that, but <laughs> if I could give any information that will be helpful, I, that's my always my main goal: education. Yes. So. Yeah. Well, nonetheless, welcome to the show. Thank you. First question I wanted to ask is, of course, the coronavirus. Right? It's this is it change. It, it, I had all of these PSL PSAL games that the playoff time and everything was a fluid situation, and then all of a sudden, zoop, done. Everything March eleventh. That was it. Uh, just talk about what your experience, how are you holding up? How's your family holding up? And when was the moment that you took all this like really serious? Well, I'm fine. I did test positive for antibodies. Uh, and I think that was a direct result of being around so many people during playoff time. Mm. But what happened was on uh, March 11th, when we had our double A semifinals, there were so many people in the gym and people were talking about it. And uh, one of our colleagues had tested positive. We were all a little nervous about that, but we couldn't get, nobody could get tested. So everybody just laid low after that. That was it. It was the end. March 11th, season ended. 
basketball ended. But I'm holding up great. Mm. You know, I keep myself active. I have other things in my life besides right. basketball. Mm-hmm. And my family's great. Everybody's great. Mm. So, so I, I think an interesting question that I would always want to ask somebody like you that has been in the game for so long, that must have been weird that it just got knocked out for like the foreseeable. We still don't really know when it's going to happen. And I appreciate you because the past couple of Zoom calls that we've been in, you've kept it real. Like I feel, I feel very realistic about this. Like I still haven't cut my hair. I haven't really thought about refing because it's like, it, to me, it's a pipe dream. There's like so much more important things. And I feel like other people should focus on other things in the meantime, instead of like worrying about it, going back to what they think they should be. And you realize how much things are out of control. And this is obviously no different. Just from your perception, what do you think you've learned about yourself during this whole whole time? Uh, well, I've been around the block a few times, so I, I know a lot about myself <laughs> to begin with. But I think realizing that there's more to life than just basketball or officiating. Right. There's a lot to do, and uh, you have to take care of yourself. You mm-hmm. have to eat right and surround yourself with good people because you never know right. what's gonna what's right around the corner. Right. Is this probably the craziest thing that has ever happened in your officiating lifetime? I would say absolutely yes, mm. because it just shut down. Could you imagine PSAL office shut, closed, no sports, no, there was no baseball last year. There was no spring sports mm-hmm. this year, nothing, no, nothing on the schedule. Right. So that is very unusual. Even the Catholics and the privates, they're playing their outdoor sports What's going to happen when they try to get basketball going? Right, right. You know, I, I coach at Kellenberg, and they have a large screen in there, and there's 300 seniors every day, day in and day out, and they they learn. And I just don't see them hiring the pyrotechnic group of Madison Square Garden to bring all of that stuff to and fro every day just for a basketball game. It just seems like it's a, a meaningless thing to do. So I just don't know, but I do understand their rationale. And we talked about this off air a couple of weeks ago about how all those kids are in the building. So they can kind of justify that. I did want to go back to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I know you're always busy during come playoff time. And, you know, early March is that bread and butter time of trying to figure out where we, we can get people to go in. What were those moments like when they just shut it down? Were you Did you even question it? Were you kind of left in the dark with things and, and just confused about what was happening? Actually, no. The next day was supposed to be, March 12th was supposed to be the A and B quarterfinals. Mm-hmm. So in the morning, it was very hectic. A lot of phone calls because I also acted as uh, borough supervisor for Queens, and we had quite a few Queens teams. And uh, the big game that day was going to be high school construction uh, and American studies. They were two really great teams. And back and forth, game on, game off, game on, game off. So around 1 o'clock, it just shut down. Mm. And from, from that moment on, it was, it was we are done. We're not going to try. The office closed. People had to work remote. So I wasn't confused at all. I right. knew it was over. Yeah. I, I knew that there was, and then when the, uh, the ba- ba- baseball, softball, flag football, all of that was not being scheduled. I knew that basketball you know, was totally done. Right. And I had a PSAL baseball schedule and I remember it was, it was a very weird correspondence because it was like, we're still holding out hope. Right. Um, April 15th is the new start date. And, and then it you just see on the Arbiter, red, 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 red. It just kept going and going. And 
I think around that time, that's when I started going like, let's focus on other things that we can control. But, you know, this is about your officiating career. And I did want to give you the opportunity to talk about just your love of just sports in general. So having said that, where did you grow up? What did you play growing up? What did you play in middle school, high school and in college? Well, I grew up in Brooklyn and we did not have organized sports when I was little. I did not play an organized game until I was in the seventh grade. And the only sport that I that was there available for girls my age at that time was basketball. But the interesting story about that is we would go on Saturday mornings and either you went at 10 to 11 to play basketball or 11 to 12. Mm-hmm. So what did you do that other hour? You had to choose whether you were going to take sewing or arts and crafts. You couldn't just do, girls could not do two hours of basketball. One hour, and then you had to choose some other activity. Mm. So, and we, ne- we didn't play games either. Mm. It was just clin- clinic type thing and, you know, played against each other. And it wasn't until I was in high school, my first high school game was the first organized game I ever played in in any sport. And that was JV basketball for St. Edmund High School. Mm. When we were kids, we chose upsides and we played every game imaginable. Punch ball, stick ball. Uh, I'd go to my cousin's, uh, my, my male cousin's baseball games and they would be kind enough after the games to stay and hit me some balls. But there was, no ba- there was nothing for girls my age back mm. then. So we just made it up as we went along. Mm. And I think that's what made me a good physical education teacher because I could make up a game in a second, <laughs> you know, when, just give me a rock and I'll, I'll figure out some rules or regulations and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So mm-hmm. that's really, that's what we did. And, and it wasn't just uh, on my block. It was mostly boys and there was two girls and me and my friend Patty. And so, you know, we played the same rules the boys did, you know, flag, uh, not flag football. There's no such thing as that touch two hand touch, Stickball, handball, and then we would go around the corner to the schoolyard, and that's when I would learn to pitch because mm. there would be a box on the wall mm-hmm. and have a little Spalding and through to the box. So you would learn high, high outside corner, low inside corner, and that's how I learned to pitch. Mm. You could probably pitch better than me because I played one day, got hit in the balls, and that was probably the last time I ever <laughs> got near it. And that will up- do it for you. <laughs> That will do it. And it's kind of sad because I'm really into baseball. And for some inexplicable reason, I never played it. But during your time in college, were you still involved in sports at all? Yeah, I went to Kingsboro and I played basketball there. That was the first year. My freshman year at Kingsboro was the first year that girls went to five on five and that you could run the full court. When Mm. I was in high school, we had six players on the two stationary guards that played defense two stationary forwards that just played offense and two rovers that were able to go back and forth. That's, mm. that's what I played in high school. Wow. So freshman year in Kingsborough, like it wasn't too much for me because I would play in the park. Right. So I was always running and I was rover, you know, back in high school. So that was uh, my first experience with organized five on five. Mm. And then after Kingsborough, I went to Brooklyn college and I played a year of basketball there. Okay. So now after you transitioned, now you're a young professional. Now you're, I guess, seeking work. Or Were you still involved in athletics at all, aside from being a physical education teacher? Uh, yeah. I 
I played wherever there was a game. Mm. And I also refed. I started refing when I was a freshman in high school. Mm. Went to Catholic school, as I mentioned. Coach said, if you want to be on this team, you have to learn the rules. Gave everybody a rule book. And then one night, uh, somebody from the New York City board came and gave us a test. And we all had to pass the rules test. So, of course, we all passed. And and then the woman gave a very impassioned speech about the lack of officials. And if we were interested in becoming officials, they would help us. And so I was the only one that raised my hand. And I, I learned how to become an official. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, I did CYO for seven or eight years uh, And then I graduated to high school. When I was a freshman in college, I started doing JV high school. Mm. Now, that that duality of playing basketball and also just learning, officiating basketball at an early age, was it something that you likened more than the other? Or was it something that was just kind of like your basketball life and you just enjoyed being around the game? Well, I also coached. So it was the game, Mm -hmm. you know. And to this day, that is my number one focus is the game, how the game is played, how it's officiated, um, how it's coached, the whole atmosphere. So it was always about the game. Coaching, I coached little kids. I was coaching CYO all throughout my time in high school and in college, and then went on to coach other teams. Mm. Now, so out of all those things, you still think coaching is the the hierarchy of, of all when it comes to basketball? Because <laughs> No, no, not at all. <laughs> I really think playing is the hierarchy. Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. if we could all remain players. Right. But I think that coaches, for the most part, they work hard. Mm-hmm. And you could tell those who do and those who don't. I mean, as an official, you know that yep. when a coach is yelling at you because you're not calling stuff or that you're, oh, you're not calling the foul, whatever. Sometimes you just want to blow your whistle and say, listen, coach, what do you do in practice? Do you actually, <laughs> like... Do you ever go over defense? Do you ever go over fundamentals? Mm. So I don't I don't think coaching is the hierarchy at all. Mm. No. Now, when it comes to officiating, I know for me, when I first started, I remember my time in CYO. And I was like, this is the wild, wild west. You got so many people here that have been doing it for 40 years. And I'm thinking like, wow, maybe I can do this for 40 years. And But then you start meeting people that are more serious about it. And then you start thinking things different. Like before... I would be resistant towards wearing the pants and getting it tailored and all of these different things that you learn as you meet more professionally oriented refs. When was that change in your mind for you when you were like, you know what, I want to be very serious in this craft? I suppose what when it really happened to me was I was coaching at CW Post. I was assistant basketball coach out there. And a lot of the referees that were coming in to referee I knew Mm. because I was a high school referee and I think when I decided I didn't want to coach anymore that's when I made a commitment to officiating Mm. to wearing the wearing the outfit the the uniform the correct way getting your hair cut a certain way so that it didn't fly in your face staying in shape making sure you learn the rules and and things like that so it was very late for me and then when I did officiate college, I didn't really like it, Mm. to be honest with you. Remember, at that time, this is early 80s, there were not as many women in the game. Mm. Most of, because of Title IX and the expansion of female athletics and the amount of teams, it just exploded. There was a great need for officials. 
So a lot of men decided to join the women's ranks. And I mean, that's fine, except for the fact that they brought the men's rules, they brought their men's attitudes, mm. and I didn't really know them that well. So it was a two-person game. When I had to travel 60, 70, 80 miles to go do a Division One game, I was traveling with somebody I really didn't know. Right. You know, not it's not like today where you grow up together, you right. go into the game together, mm-hmm. you see each other at camps. I did not go to my first camp until probably 1991. Wow. Yeah. Now we have, last summer, we had, not this past summer because we didn't have anything, but I was part of the Magbo J camp where we had high school kids. Mm-hmm. And so those high school kids, if they pursue it, they will be have worked together from high school right. on. So it's different when you have familiarity. Yeah. You know? And also now there's a more uniform rule set. So we're all on the same page as far as that goes. But back in the early 90s, it was, you talk about the wild, wild west. Mm. I mean, people, it was advantage, disadvantage, the rule book, <laughs> you know, throw it out the window on the way to the game. It was, if it was an advantage, somebody gained an advantage by contact, it was a foul. If they didn't, it wasn't a foul. It's changed a lot yeah. since then. And the, probably the biggest change is the technological piece of everything going online and videotape, mm-hmm. right? I, I know that we, we mentioned off air, like, there used to be videotape. I mean, even you referred to, I, I think I had a game in Queens, and you came to observe me. And I remember you like, watch yourself on tape. And I'm like, do we call it tape now still? Or do we, <laughs> Are you sure that was me? Yeah. I, I, you know, like I, I did carry my iPad around for... For a number of years until it ran out of memory. Right. And right. I couldn't understand why can't I record anymore? But referees would see me walk in the gym with my little iPad. But but in video the whole game. You can take out a, a video camera, phone, iPad, and you could watch somebody on it for five minutes and you can point out things because you, just by your mechanic and you don't raise your arm or you're not in a position to see something that's happening. You're not, you know, there's, you're straight lined. You're not seeing uh, somebody's hand go in to try to, you know, get the ball, but foul a kid. And if positioning is really the 100% key. Mm-hmm. So the video really tells that story. Mm. On the other hand, from a fan's point of view and coach's point, videos can be used as weapons, you know, like uh, that, um, what the official looks like, or they're not hustling, or they made a bad call, or things like that. So that is something that's very unnerving, especially on the lower levels, Mm. you know, to be videoed and tasked with getting it perfect on a high school game. Mm. But but you do think that technology and the advancement has been a positive benefit from when it was, because I'm, I'm assuming that when you were driving those 80 miles, you had to have the directions because there was no such thing as a GPS at the time. It was before map quests. <laughs> <laughs> I hated those things too, because if you made one wrong turn, you would have to still go back. But then I remember like in the eighties when my dad would ask for directions from somebody and we're like at a nondescript woods and they would go, yeah, hang a left. If you go two lights, then make a right. And it would be all these like, wow, I can't believe like imagine doing that and having to officiate and having to be somewhere early. It was nerve wracking. It really was, especially some of these colleges in New Jersey where, you know, you come off of uh, 280 West and there's no lights. I'm yeah. a city girl. Mm-hmm. We used to have street lights and now, well, even Long Island, very, very dark and 
you can't see anything. And now you're trying to read handwritten directions because remember, when did MapQuest really start? I'd say like 2001, 2000, around oh, there. Oh, a little bit before that. Yeah, maybe 98. But in 1991, there was no MapQuest. Right. You know? And it was calling somebody and asking them directions, calling the school. You know, you have to make sure, you know, everything. Get And like you said, you, you work. You have to make sure you have something to eat. Mm-hmm. The game is either five, six, or seven you know, depending on the time of time of the season. And you have to get there an hour and a half before the game. You have to be all dressed up. So if your job requires you to wear a certain, say you're a police officer or, you know, like in my case of physical education teacher, I have warm-ups on, you got to dress up, you know, put on nice clothes and walk into an unfamiliar gym and work with an unfamiliar partner. Right. And only one partner. So yeah, that 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 whole time it was a very difficult time, especially mm-hmm. for women. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's why I didn't last long. I didn't like it. <laughs> I really didn't. Interesting. Interesting. I, I, and then I stayed back at the high school game. And mm. I just loved the high school game. Mm. So how did you? When did you start transitioning, getting off the court, and then having the assigning piece? Okay, so I was getting a little older. But it's not a nice schedule. And actually, Tracy Towns grabbed me one night and said that uh, she was going to be a signing for the PSAL, and she wanted me on her team. I didn't really understand what she meant about mm-hmm. it because there was a, an observer program with the PSAL, and I thought that that's what she was talking about. Like, I didn't really hear the word assigning. Right. Uh-huh. So I was like, yeah, sure, no, no problem. And then I got a call from Lorna Austin from the PSALs. Can I come in for the interview for the assigning job? And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa what? The assigning job? All right. I'll, I'll go check it out. And the job, my first job for the PSL was to assign JV citywide, every borough, JV. So there wasn't a lot of people clamoring to do that job. Mm. And we didn't have a signing software. I we did have email, so I gave most of the games was not by telephone, was by email. So I would. You would tell me that you are available these dates. I would say, okay, I have this game, this game, this game. And then I'd have to write, you know, type it all up and confirm it with you. That sounds very painful. I don't even think copy and paste was around at that time. (laughs) It was painful, but you know what? I put the work in and two years I did just strictly JV. Then I, uh, Tracy wanted to give up Staten Island. So I took Staten Island Varsity At that time, I started doing signing Catholics, the Catholics in Staten Island and the Catholics in Manhattan. And then Tracy didn't really want to do it anymore, and that's when I took over um, Bronx, Manhattan Mm. and Staten Island. Now, even though you were reluctant initially to it, you grew into the job, right? Everyone respects you. They know that you're going to make a sound decision on it. (laughs) Wait a second. (laughs) Be careful with using the word everyone. Mm. All right. It's hard work, yeah. and you do work at it. Mm. But the biggest thing that you have to do is you have to get your people to buy in mm. to what you're doing. Because it's not an absolute science. Yeah. The schedule changes every day. And you as an official know that. Yeah, You have one schedule, and then you get a notice it's changed, and the time changes, and the, this changes, and, and uh, you have to get to know, you know, who you can get people, where you can get people to go at a moment's notice, mm-hmm. who's willing to travel, and who is reliable. I did, I did the assignment for 16 years, but in the beginning, I didn't know that about people. I mean, I knew the people I, it was in my circle, right. 
But I was basically based in, I, I refereed in Manhattan, and I would referee Staten Island and Brooklyn, Queens. But there were places I really didn't have those connections. Right. So you ha- had to develop them over the years. Mm. Um, and, and just I even think about this, I can't believe it's the same year. My first experience is getting a, an assignment for you was a snowy night that I ended up going into the Bronx that the game ultimately got canceled and I didn't even get notification from it and I didn't hold it against anybody. It was just a like last minute thing and me and Demes joked about it the last time I saw him. I do remember that quite well because it was like the first week of the season and uh, it was Mott Haven and Bronx Science, mm-hmm. which uh, is a... a tremendous rivalry, an A-division rivalry up in the Bronx, and I was so happy to have you and Demez on the game. And when I found out that the game had been changed, and I found out through Demez calling me from the site, you were still on your way, I just almost lost my mind with that. Yes, it's that. that is, that is the most frustrating part. Mm. And I had other games that I could have had. Two of my, the, the two best refs for that day were you and Demez on that game. Mm-hmm. Now I lost you. Right. So that not only wasting time, mm-hmm. because when a schedule change happens at the last minute, if it's on the PSAO website, you'll get paid. Right. But sometimes it's like, well, oh, we forgot to call you. Oh, we forgot to do this. We got, and sometimes I can't get my officials paid mm. and that's really the most frustrating. Yeah. Well, you did the right thing and I got, I got the money. So it, it, I think it got half fair. Yeah. We're, we're, we're square with that. So I don't know if you know, but I just got named the national director for flag football on the national side and I'm going to be assigning for the national tournaments. What kind of advice would you give me since I am probably at day zero from when you started? Oh boy. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, what, what I would say is, you know, get, get your database together, mm. get your database of who, what, where, and when. And, uh, you know, you, you look, yeah, you would not have gotten that job if you didn't have knowledge of referee, the officiating and, right. and where these people are. Like you have to send people to tournaments. Is that really what it is? Yeah. Like nationally, like Tampa and Ohio. And Maybe New I'll York. get back into officiating <laughs> something, but yeah, the database is key and clinics, camps you get to you get to know people Mm. you get to see the people who want to work hard and you just have to get yourself out there Mm. in the beginning is the hardest and may you know maintaining is not easy but in the beginning it it is the hardest okay so i'll just i'll just brace for that call me issue now i got i got a lot of time on my hands okay okay now when it comes to that whole observation piece i know that it, it it's a jarring experience for people because you know they know you as a specific identity. Chris Kelly is the assigner and you know, you'll, you'll be in, in, in any nondescript gym and they'll go, Oh my God, Chris is there. I haven't been, I haven't been my, I, I should be reffing. That's gotta be weird for you. Right. And, and it's the same thing with referee. Rant. I'm the same person. Nothing has changed for me. I'm the same person. You could, I'm very personable, but for some reason, as the show has evolved and my website has done what it does, it, it people treat me different. And, you know, I, I really preach to everyone. I'm still the same person. And I'm pretty sure you feel the same way. You're, you're still the same Chris and mm-hmm. people that know of officiating. What, what do you look for in an official when, when you do observe? First thing I look at is their appearance. What do they look like? And I'm not talking about color of skin or male, female, anything like that. Um, how do they present themselves? 
Do they present themselves as an, a figure of authority? Because you are an authority. Do the pants fit? Is the shirt clean? Do you have the right whistle? A lot of men's leagues, I think, I don't know because I'm not on that side, they don't use the lanyard, but the women, it's part of our uniform. Long, long time ago, we used to have a black band on the bottom of a shirt, and it was for men and women, and I would walk into a gym and I would see the male officials with their shirt tucked in because that's the boys' uniform. You know, I would notice things. I noticed that you're running up the court. I notice whether or not you have... A lot of people wear white socks under those black uh, mm. pants. What does your hair look like? Do you have a beard? Do you have glasses? Not to say that if you have a beard or glasses is a bad thing, but it could change the perception of what a coach is seeing. Now, there's so many different levels of officiating. So I'm focusing, when I say that about appearance, that is from the very, very first time you officiate until right up to the highest level of Division One, because the uniform is something that you can control. Mm. You can't control the game as much as we try. You can control how you dress. You can control if you're on time. You can control certain things, and those are the things that you must do 100% of the time. So when I first walk into a gym, now I always try to get to a gym – half hour before the game, I've kind of noticed if you weren't there yet. <laughs> uh, you know, a coach would come right over to me and say, oh, I only have one official, and the officials aren't here, you know. And then what happens to me is now i got to start making phone calls or texts, or where are you, whatever, oh, I'm in traffic, you know. So noticing what, you know, what's going on in the gym, how people are dressed, their appearance, how they're communicating with the coaches, the timings, the scores, and that's even before the ball gets thrown up. So that's, that's the first thing that I notice. Mm. Second thing that I would notice when the game starts is your positioning and hustle, whether or not you're running. Can you run? There's a lot of officials that cannot run. I notice mechanics. If I see a foul that's obvious to me in the fourth row and, and the bleacher and you don't blow your whistle, I wonder why. You know? So th- those, are the, those are the kinds of things. And as you know, at halftime, I almost always go into the locker room and have, we have a chat. And I ask, you know, what you saw on this or what you saw on that and, you know, maybe how you can just tweak this a little bit. And so then what I notice is whether or not you go out in the second half and put that into practice mm. and improve what you're doing on the, on the floor. I'm not dealing with Division One referees. I'm dealing with high school officials, many of which aspire to go to the college level. So if you're one of those referees that I know want to aspire to a higher level, I'll be very specific about things. If I know you're at the end of your career and doing the best you can and doing the game, and you're really doing the best you can, there's no purpose in me giving a clinic at halftime when you have five minutes and maybe you'd like a drink of water, Mm -hmm. you know. So those are the things that I notice. What do you think you learned about yourself all of this time being an assigner? That I'm extremely patient. Mm. Sometimes you just want to run out of, you know, you want to like, well, what are you doing? But I learned that that I'm very patient. And I understand that referees are people first. And they have lives and they have children and they have jobs and they have family issues. And so instead of me 
blasting off on somebody when they walk into a gym late or they're not up to what where they should be, I'll first say, is everything okay? You know, so being patient and understanding that, you know, this is people's people's job. Right. Now, you know, you spent a lot of time officiating and of course you've spent so much time assigning just from your perception from aside from the, all the other things that we've talked about, i.e. technology, how much do you think the game of basketball has changed and how much has officiating changed from when you stepped off the court to now you're assigning and everything is 2020? The game has changed tremendously. From, it changes from year to year. I'd say in the last five or six years, the biggest change has been the focus on calling the game as the rules are written. And so what that means is that if you don't know your rules, you're not going to move up to the next level. And lack of knowledge of the rules, you really become exposed mm-hmm. the higher level the competition. And I've seen a lot of officials in because we would have showcases where we would have three-person games and we would try to get a mixture of a really experienced official with a, an up-and-comer, somebody who's working hard and has a lot of availability and you know wants to work hard and wants to move up. And we could see the tough of the game sometimes, that official who doesn't know the rules, they are exposed mm. on that level. Mm-hmm. And so you, it's, it's better to have it exposed at a showcase or during the season than at the end where all the marbles, you know, like you lose, you go home. Right. So that has changed that uh, accountability has changed also because we have the assigning software. And if I send you a text, I expect you to answer me. Right. Yes, no, or can't help you or whatever, but just answer me because a lot of times you get into a jam, somebody's car breaks down, you need an official right away, or somebody gets sick or something. So accountability as far as availability is something that's really, really big now. Mm-hmm. Where it wasn't as big, you know, years ago. Because there are more games now. Right. So it's a numbers thing. Yeah. So um, I would say that, that, that that's the biggest thing. And the technology that you had mentioned, the video, you know, some guy in the, some guy is screaming at your whole game, can take a two-second clip and send it to an office, PSAO office, a Catholic school office or whatever, complaining about an official for a little snippet. Mm-hmm. You know, that has changed a mm-hmm. lot. So, Well, I'll say just the officiating piece, at least my vantage point as an assigner, I think you make it look pretty seamless because I don't look at all those behind-the-scenes things that you probably do day in and day out. How difficult it is for just a day in the life of, let's say it's January 4th, on a day that starts snowing, what is the what is the day as an assigner like? Well, if I know it's going to snow, then I'm probably at my computer at 6 a.m. Wow. And just, well, the night before I have already looked to see what do I, what do I have? And then you have to listen to the, the, the forecast. You have to understand, you know, like, like if it's going to be eight inches in Staten Island, it might only be three inches in the Bronx. And also... One thing I learned about being an assigner and snow is that the first snowfall of the season is the worst. <laughs> Everybody wants to cancel. They, they don't want to, is the games, can, are the games canceled? Are the games canceled? The games canceled. So that is the most difficult part is not knowing what's going to be canceled, what isn't going to be canceled, you know, have an idea, 
so when the cancellations start coming in, schools have a right to cancel if their principals want to cancel, but it's not all canceled unless the PSAL says it's canceled and unless they get it from the mayor's office. Wow. So it's it's not just a league administrator saying, you know, it looks pretty bad out there. Right. We, we should cancel. It's, it's a d- Department of Education thing. It all comes from the top. So the day of the life on January 4th, especially that we just came, broke for Christmas, now we're just coming back, it's, so it's in the beginning of that second half. It could be, I'm on the phone all day. I'm on the phone, I'm on the computer, I'm on the phone, I'm on the computer, I'm on the phone. I'm like, you really don't eat. You, it's, it's just, it's really hard until 4.30. And then, <laughs> and then it's over. Do, do you find pleasure in it now that you've been doing it for so long? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a stressful thing to do it, but then I'm assuming that at 4.30 you're like, wow, I got through that. Well, yeah, I mean, I got through it, but then tomorrow, <laughs> you know, I mean, it depends how much it, it snowed. But it is very stressful. Yeah. I, listen, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, and uh, I, I don't care what league you're assigning. Assigning is stressful. Yes. Last year I had almost 2,500 assignments. So I had personally 99 teams, varsity teams that I assigned for and about 20 JV teams. There's 13 varsity teams in Brooklyn Queens League. So the comparison of the workload, we have double A, A, B, we have developmental, we have JV. There's so many levels, so many, and there's just so many games, so many assignments, so many people. So it is very, very stressful. Mm -hmm. Now, I did want to take this opportunity for you to just talk about some of the mentors that you've had in your officiating career, who they are, what they've done for your career, and how do you think they've shaped the way you've helped people after you? Well, my early mentors were the the women who really started the New York City board. And those were people that... You've never heard of, and, mo- and most people that are refereeing now never heard of, Cynthia McGrath, Marianne Coyle, Marie Sisti. Angie Sanzavira was one of the role models. Angie was one of the first, the Brooklyn area, to actually rise very, very high in NCAA. Phyllis Devaney was a role model. You know, She was very, a young official and a uh, young female official, and everybody loved her. She had a great personality, and when I was coaching out at Post, she, she did a lot of our games. So she was someone that uh, that I had looked up to. But, you know, really, it's not like it is today mm. where you have camps and clinics where you can go to a camp and you can meet. I mean, going to a camp and listen to Joe Vasily talk, so many people look up to him just the, by his, the way he is and his, you know, his calm nature. And being able to listen to John Levinson and his knowledge of the rules, Debbie Williamson, what I was first coming in, we didn't have these national, you know, people. We had our local people. Right. People that helped me were the ones that said, come on, I have a game for you. I The first time I ever referenced Staten Island, Marie Sisti, uh, she called me up and she said, there's an emergency. There's somebody that's going to score a thousand points at Moore Catholic. And they just scheduled the game so that the kid could get the thousand points on a day off. I need you to come and ref. And I was like, I, I never refed out in Staten Island. I don't think I want to go out there. And she was like, come on, we're going. Get your stuff. We're going to go. And I'll tell you, it was one of the greatest experiences I ever had. And I was hooked. I was hooked on Staten Island. And then after that, the assigner was Joanne Beyer. 
I, t- I called her up and I said, you know, I'd like to work in Staten Island. She gave me games and the rest was history. I left out there for 20-something years. Wow. That's where I got my most of my training to deal with the college coaches mm. because those people out there, they knew what they were doing. Oh, yeah. You know, and they had t- tons of the, the places were packed every single night. Yeah. You know, so you had to know what you were doing. Oh, yeah. I remember I had a game. I think it was Farrell versus St. Joe's. And I didn't know. I'm from Long Island. So yeah, like, yeah. I'm thinking it's probably yeah. the same thing. And I'm like, why is there so many people here? <laughs> this is confusing. Why can't I park? Why, why Why can't I hear anything when I blow the whistle? I mean, it is a very harrowing experience if you've never been through the Staten Island ringer. Those those intra rivalries that they have. I mean, we're talking about bragging rights at the grocery store for 30 years. And, and it's good that you experienced that because it's. It's a very special and unique experience there. Well, it taught, A, it prepared me to do college. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so even people throwing a chair would not amaze <laughs> me. But, you know, I was also appreciated the level of basketball in the late 80s, in the mid-80s, late 80s, and early 90s. You know, women's, girls' high school basketball was really coming into their own. And there were some really great players. And I got to see a lot of them. Now, there's almost... You know, now it's just like crazy oversaturation. You know, there's a thousand AAU teams. There's a thousand different AAU programs. There's high school kids are playing 26 regular season games and tournaments. And, you know, it's just a, it's, it's an oversaturation. Right. So I don't have a, a great of appreciation mm. you know, for it. But funny thing about Staten Island is Notre Dame Academy played in an elementary school gym which is usually a smaller gym, and they had folding chairs. So when the game started, all the chairs, of course, were behind the sideline. And as the game got went on, the parents would inch their chairs onto the court so that by the time the fourth quarter came, you, you were missing like two feet all, all around the place. Plus you had chillers sitting on the stage kicking you in the back when you were at the lead. And people like trying to get in that they, there wasn't enough room. The timers and the scores, like benches were right on top of them and coaches yelling and screaming at them. So those were harrowing experiences. Mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the next time I can go there, whenever that is. But after the, everything you said, what do you think of the attributes? What do you think it took to get to where you are at this moment in time as a basketball official? And of course, as an assigner. Hard work. That's really it. I mean, if you want to do something, you'll work hard at it. And nothing was given to me. I worked for every single thing I have since since I was a kid. That was the work ethic that uh, my parents instilled in us. And you can have talent in something, and that w- might get you in the door. Mm-hmm. But to keep that door open and climb up the stairs and get to a different level, it's going to take hard work and commitment. You know, you have to know what it is you want and how you're going to go about getting there. Mm. And you have to work hard. Mm. And that's really that's really the, the bottom line, Ralph. What do you think it's going to take to get to where you want to go and ultimately where do you want to go? And has that has that changed because of the pandemic? I always say, where I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> you want to go to Florida? I want to go, yes, I want to go to the beach. I do not have great aspirations to go any higher other things out there Mm. and there's a lot of exciting things that are happening so I have to decide of which opportunities I wish to pursue because I I really don't 
I don't believe that this COVID thing is just going to stop and everybody's going back to normal. Right. And you heard me say that yes. uh, on a Zoom call one night, but I just think that there's going to be a whole reorganization. I think that you're not going to see the schedules that you have seen. You might see some basketball being played this, this uh, winter, some colleges, maybe some private schools, some Catholic schools, but it's not going to be as expansive. Right. So what that means is there's going to be a lot of officials that are really going to have to set themselves apart because there's going to be so few games. And as far as I'm concerned, I have worked for 16 years on one-year contracts. Every year my contract is from like October 1st to March 30th, and then that's it. And then I get rehired or not the following year. So I'm not so sure that it's going to be business as usual, Mm -hmm. and I am prepared for whatever is going to happen. And if I don't remain an assigner, it does not affect me in the least because there are so many other things Mm. to do. Mm. And it is very stressful. It's very hard work. And we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. And I even, just just to relate to what you're saying, I remember when the pandemic first started, how am I going to make a website about referees when it doesn't even really exist? That was just like a very difficult thing. But I think everyone who has survived this and, and has pivoted their life, they realize that there are more important things and you can, you can still do things. You just have to figure it out. Then that's like the basis of officiating, right? Like maybe your whistle's broken or maybe something happened to your shirt. You've still got to got to figure it out. Maybe you got a flat tire, maybe there's traffic. And that's part of how officiating helps people. I mean, if you're really serious about it and you're really committed and you really want to be successful at it, you have to figure these things out. It's the same thing during a game. What happens when you go into a game and, and the coach is, it's an antagonistic situation, right? Where like, how do you deal with that? Right. The old way of saying, coach, I had enough of you sit down. Those days are over. Yeah. You know, even our mechanics tell us go table side to report fouls. And why do you think that is? So that you're not screaming across the gym, explaining why you just made a call and to keep things on a civilized professional level, mm. you know? So refereeing does teach you to go with the flow, Yeah, you know, and like not everybody gets the championship game. Right. You know, how do you, how do you take stuff like that? How do you be humble? How do you be modest? And are you going to be that official that goes to the championship games and root on your colleagues? Or are you going to be the one sitting up there criticizing every mm. call that they make? Those who are giving support, Will though will will be the more, more successful official? Mm. You can't sit up on in the stands and, and criticize your your fellow workers. It's like going into a classroom and sitting in the back and criticizing your teachers. Everybody's going to hear you, you know. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, it does teach you how how to get along in life too, because you, you're dealing with every day. You're dealing with a different referee. Yeah, no, you know, and different personalities mm-hmm. and different coaches and different players and. You know, you have to figure it out mm. to be successful. If you could pinpoint two instances, what is your most sticky situation that you've ever had as a basketball official? What's the most sticky situation that you've ever had as an assigner? Uh, as a basketball official, I would say the stickiest situation I had was, was uh, the New York State Federation tournament. And it was uh, August Martin playing Christ the King. And Christ the King, this was, a, I forget the year, but... They were having a pretty good season. It was a semifinal game on a Friday night. And it was a two-person game. And uh, the game started out, you know, uh, and it was at Marist College. That's that's where the games were being played that year. 
Started out fine. Two teams, rough and tumble. Two Queens teams. I'm was familiar with both teams. And then the halftime, it's tie score. Third quarter, Christ the King comes out with their signature full court press. And August Martin turned the ball over like 10 times, like in the first two minutes of the third quarter. So, of course, the coaches from August Martin thought that we, the officials, were not calling fouls. They were fouling them. They were fouling the girls, you know, whatever. But Christ the King went up on a big, pretty big lead. But August Martin kept fighting, fighting, fighting. And at the end of the game, my partner and I had to be escorted out of the facility. Wow. Somebody had to go into the locker room and get our stuff. And we were escorted by the police. Oh, man. We brought to uh, like a street corner. And I remember John Moran was there and Anita Morse. Anita had gotten our stuff. And, um, and we stood on this street corner having some water or whatever, you know, talking about this until somebody came and picked us up. That was a little frightening. Wow. Yeah. So, and as an assigner, like sticky situations is when you sum, you have to submit a list of playoff officials before the playoffs start. Mm. And now you're getting to the end and you're not so sure that one of these or two of these or three of these officials are up to the task or something like that. So that can become very, very sticky. A coach, you know, calling you and saying they never want to see, you know, Ralph Finoli's ever again because mm. of calls he made. And you know that Ralph has five more of their games. Things like that can get very sticky. Uh, uh, somebody calling me and complaining about their partner made appropriate advances towards them or inappropriate comments or they feel they're being harassed or, you know, th- those become very sticky situations. Mm. And it's not many people you talk to about it. Right. You know, I can't like. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta just keep that close it. to the vest. Yeah. But uh, when coaches make demands about not wanting to see particular officials, that really puts an assigner, you know, in a bad spot. Right. Because you, you, the lower levels never do that. Mm-hmm. It's the higher levels, and the higher levels doesn't just because you're at a higher level doesn't give you the right to you know want to take somebody off a, a game. Mm-hmm. So I, I that's I always try to figure out how I get around that. Yeah. Yeah, well, Could you imagine getting a call? Sorry, Ralph, coach doesn't want you. You know, what? what is that going to do for you for the rest of your career? Every time you see that guy or woman, how are you going to feel that you got called, taken off the championship game because they didn't want you? I'd probably get him on the podcast and ask him what was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Might be cathartic for them Only to feel you. what they feel. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I'm not going to call you up and say, you know, Ralph, you're out. Yeah, that's, that's not cool. Wow, no. I never thought of it that way. But- Conversely, what is your best moment as a basketball official? And what is your best moment as an assigner? Okay, as a basketball official, it was my, I was done, basically. And I got a call from Bob Mackey from Christ the King that there was a tournament going on. And, you know, would I come down and do the tournament with them? And for him. So I was like, look, I, I, ha- I can give you one game. And that game was, it was a great game. And uh, it was one team from Florida, one team from Jersey. And I did it with a young official, Mike Lacasio Jr. It was like his first high school game ever. (laughs) And uh, I know his father very well, but I didn't know uh, Mike Jr. It was a great game. And we we got through it. Okay. And at the end of the game, Vinny Canizaro came over to me and told me that somebody wanted to speak to me. And it was Tony Blair, who's the coach of Texas A&M, national champion. 
And he said to me, young lady, that was a finest officiated game I've seen a long time in this Texas drawl and everything. And that really made me feel great. So that was, that was probably like my last memory. So it was fresher in my mind, mm-hmm. but that was, uh, that was really, and, uh, a signing is there's just, when you put somebody in a position that you're working with somebody and you put them in a position to do a really big game and they come through with flying colors. Mm. I think, uh, some a game I can remember, uh, Stephanie Boxdale. So it was Stephanie's first CSAL Double A championship. Was on, she was she was a rookie. She was on the court with Kerry Dunnew and Angie Hallisey. and it was Francis Lewis South Shore. At the very end of the game, there was a call, and she made it. She came up with it. It was the right call, but it was against South Shore, mm. and South Shore lost. And I just was so proud of her because she made the right call, despite. Everybody's screaming at her, mm. you know. So that th- those were good moments yeah. when when people come up with big, big. Uh, another time, I remember Jen Cordero came to us, not knowing she was a softball person, but she came to us as a very raw basketball official, and she did uh, the B championship game with Lauren Niemira and uh, Greta, and at the end of the game came up with this like outrageous correct charge call on an out of bounds and the way she did it was just so like emphatic and she was so sure of herself and the whistle and everything that that was great those Mm. those are the moments that that i remember Mm. as as being really great so funny you should say michael lacasio jr who says he will (laughs) never come on the podcast i i find it just so appropriate to mention this my, one of my best moments at Federation when I officiated there wasn't even me on the court. It was that game that he officiated, and we all went into the locker room afterward, and you said, Mike, I don't know what you did. You didn't even do women's mechanics. What were you, I, don't even, I, don't, I don't even know what to say. And Mike said, with all due respect, Chris, I'm not doing girls anymore. And you were like, oh, my God, what is going And that is so appropriate. So shout out to my boy, but Mike. But I did say it in a nice way. You did. And with humor, because he is a funny guy. I couldn't believe you said that, but that was, that was one of my favorite moments, but basketball has brought you so many things. I mean, you played it when you were a kid, you've coached it, you've obviously played and you've officiated at a very high level and you still are involved in the game um, with officials and and you talk to, I'm sure coaches all the time and you see the game of play. What does basketball mean to you? What has it given to you in your life? It's definitely uh, part of my identity and it is, uh, I've met so many people through the game of basketball and the different levels. And it's meant a lot that way, mm-hmm. but it has never been everything. Right. It's just, it's a part of my life and it's a good part of my life. It's mm-hmm. a very healthy part, except for all the political nonsense that goes on. I, I find it to be very healthy. Mm. You know, officiating, you have to stay in shape. If you're coaching, you have to make sure that your kids understand you know, what it is you're trying to impart. Maybe you're playing with them, maybe you're playing against them, you're learning, you're, you have to be able to deal with people. And I, I would say really, that's it. I mean, I have a tremendous appreciation for the game, especially on, on the high school level. Mm. You know, I'm not so big on, you know, the NBA. Like, I don't, that doesn't really, I'm not like a junkie where I, a basketball junkie where I have to see every single level. I'd rather see young kids playing I'd rather like be able to spot 
some things, and I'd rather be able to get kids involved in basketball because it teaches you self-reliance, teaches you time management, and it teaches you to be a leader. And we are in terrible short supply of leaders, mm. good leaders today. Mm. And, you know, you have to have a brain in your head. You have to use your brain. And uh, it teaches you to, to do a lot of things. It gives you a lot of tools for real life. Right, yeah. Money management. Yeah. Oh, just to name a few. Yeah, I, I completely agree. My final question to you, though, Thank is okay. <laughs> one more, one more. You know, we talked about the coronavirus extensively off air, and I, I know I have my prediction. When do you think that everything is going to go back to normal? In terms of basketball, when do you think everything is going to go off? Because not a lot of people are united with how I feel, but I don't think this year is happening personally. So I'm preparing as if it's not, but I'm also preparing that, okay, in the event that it does, then I'll be ready. Well, I think if you really want to officiate and you're really desperate to officiate, you, you got to hook up with the rec leagues because they're all playing. There's, there is no limit on the AAU. I mean, they cannot go into schools because a lot of the schools are closed. Right. But there's going to be so much more rec ball than high. There's not going to be. I mean, if there's some Catholic school games this year, private school games – Maybe maybe they'll start the season. Maybe they're going to have to stop because of a case or two. But we we haven't even hit the second wave. Right. So I doubt very seriously there'll be any sense of normalcy. Mm-hmm. As this time kind of reminds me of nine eleven mm. a little bit. That when nine eleven happened, everything changed, and. We went along with those changes because it was patriotic. Right. It was, mm-hmm. you know, the right thing to do. Like we, we allowed ourselves to be, you know, we couldn't bring water onto the planes anymore. We had to take our shoes off. We had to go through TSA and all that stuff. And we all did it because that was for our country. Now, basketball, basketball has to take a back seat to people doing the right thing about preventing the spread of the virus. Mm-hmm. It's like just what we can do. You know, as an individual, what I can do as an individual is I could wear my mask. I don't go out into big public places, things like that. Like I'm not, I don't think that basketball is a realistic thing. Yeah. think that right. high school basketball would be going mm-hmm. on this season at all. I think we can prepare for next, the next season. But I think a, va- a vaccine is important. I have a vaccine that will be very helpful, but yeah. There was so much misinformation going on there right, right now. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I really don't know. Yeah. And of, of course, everyone is an independent contractor. You're free to do what you want. But I will always implore everyone, stay safe, stay socially distanced, wash your hands, wear a mask. I thank you for your time, Chris Kelly. Any final words you want to say before we part ways? Well, to all you officials out there that have time on your hands, find something healthy to do. <laughs> uh, keep yourself in shape. Stay in touch. And uh, till we meet again. Yes. And thank you, Ralph. You're, you're very kind to interview me. I'm not so sure how many people are interested in all these stories, but if one person can learn one thing from it, I think it's worth it. I just have a funny feeling that a lot of people are going to hear this, but we'll, we'll see what happens. And I would assume that it'll probably be, you'll have your birthday and then you'll have your pod day. Because when it comes out, everyone's going to just text you as if you're like, wow, this feels like a day of basketball, <laughs> the way they're hitting me up. <laughs> But I thank you for Chris Kelly. You got it. This is Ralph the Ref. This is The Rant. We are signing out. Peace.